Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with a renowned speaker, best-selling author, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics, including addiction, trauma, stress, and childhood development. He has written a recent New York Times bestselling book called The Myth of Normal. And today, I had the opportunity to connect with him. We talked about the definition of trauma, why it's so widespread and misunderstood, differences between habit and addiction the impact of a toxic culture and materialism, as well as an epidemic of loneliness, the impact of the pandemic, a loss of control, why women are at greater risk for developing autoimmune disorders and the impact of adverse childhood events, what negatively impacts a healthy childhood and development, multi-generational trauma, and how we can heal through compassion inquiry and healing. Today is a particularly transparent honest and open discussion about how I grew up as an individual, how that has influenced me throughout my lifetime. And this is a particularly insightful podcast that I hope you will find great value in. Dr. Monte, it is such a pleasure to connect with you. Your book and the work that you do is so transformational. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to connect with you and share this with my audience. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. And thanks for giving me the invitation. Absolutely. Can we start the conversation talking about what exactly trauma is? Because I know as myself, as a trained medical professional, my perception of trauma is very different than the way that you explain it. And it makes such sense. And I think for so many people that are listening, trauma and the concept of trauma is so controversial and largely misunderstood. So the problem with the word trauma is that it's one of these words that everybody has got their own interpretation. So all I can do is give you mine. Um, and in this culture, trauma is both overemphasized and where it matters, it's not emphasized at all. So often people talk about being traumatized by having a difficult experience. You know, I went on a picnic and it rained and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You were just disappointed. You know, you weren't traumatized, you know, or... I went on a date and it was terrible and I was traumatized. No, you weren't. You just were upset, you know? So not every upset, not every stressful, not every painful experience is traumatic. Every traumatic experience is stressful, but not every stressful experience is traumatic. So trauma comes from a word. But on the other hand, in the medical world, in the legal world, in the educational world, where a deep understanding of trauma is essential, it's absolutely missing. So the average medical student never gets a single lecture on a relationship of trauma and illness, which is scientifically not even controversial. So what is trauma? Trauma is a wound. It comes from a Greek word for wounding. So a wound is where you hurt and the effects of that hurt persist. So psychological trauma is what happens is when we are hurt. And trauma is not what happens to us. So people think of trauma as a war, a tsunami, sexual or physical abuse. Those are traumatic, but they're not the trauma. The trauma is the wound that we sustain as a result. So two people can go through a war, 
One will be traumatized, wounded, the other one not, physically, but that's also through psychologically as well. So the trauma is not the experience externally of what happened to you, but what happened inside you as a result. And the biggest impact of trauma, both on the psychological and the physical level, is a disconnection from the self. When children, for whatever reason, are being hurt, the only way they can survive or endure it is to disconnect from their sense of physical and often emotional pain. And then we lose ourselves. So trauma really is a loss of self, is what happens. And then that has all kinds of consequences, physically and emotionally. But in, in a simple nutshell summary of it, trauma is a wound that happens to you as a result of what happened to you. And the impacts of that wound persist and show up throughout your life until you resolve it. And the impacts can show up physically in the form of illness or mentally in the form of mental illness or through behaviors like difficult relationships, addictions, and so on and so forth. So it has many manifestations. The source of it is this wound that you sustained. I hope that was clear enough. It was a beautiful explanation and it allows me to kind of lead into something that you touched on that our personality develops out of these experiences and that our personality is a reflection of the traits we take to survive our childhood. And when I heard you say that as someone who did have a a great deal of physical and emotional trauma growing up, it really made a lot of sense because on the exterior, I looked like I got the good grades and all these things fell into place but it was all a built up coping mechanism to survive what I was growing up in within my household. And, you know, when you describe personality in that manner, it's really a direct reflection of our experiences as our younger selves. Yeah. And so, you know, I could relate to that experience of yours because um, in my forties, if you looked at me from the outside, I was a successful physician, quite respected in my community occasional newspaper contributor, married with children, a success. And internally, I was depressed and alienated and workaholic and difficulties in my marriage and challenges in my parenting. And the traumas that I had experienced as an infant actually drove me into that successful path. So the world would say, this is a man who's functioning beautifully. That's not who I was at all. And having to explore that and then seeing the same patterns in my patients is what got me to start looking at health and illness in a completely different way. And so it's interesting when you touch on the fact that trauma can be at the root of a lot of our choices, our addictions, our habits, where do we go from something being a habit to something being defined as an addiction? Because that distinction, I think, is really important for people to understand? Well, a habit is something that we do habitually. So, you know, I go swimming every day when I can do that, that's a habit, you know? Now, an addiction, a habit can become addictive depending on how you relate to it. So I define addiction, and maybe I'll ask you a question about it afterwards if I can. I'll define addiction, as I do in this book, The Myth of Normal, as manifested in any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief or pleasure and therefore craves, but then suffers negative consequences as a result of and cannot give up despite negative consequences. So uh, pleasure, relief, craving in the short term, harm in the long term, 
inability to resist despite harm. Notice I didn't say anything about drugs. I said any behavior. It could be drugs, but of course, it could also be eating, shopping, gambling, uh, smoking, of course, which is a drug, pornography, the internet, gaming, extreme sports, relationships, anything. If you're craving it, it gives you temporary pleasure, causes you harm, not giving it up, you got an addiction. And just in order to throw a light, Cynthia, on this question, can I ask you, according to that definition, and I'm not asking you for any specifics, but was there ever any addictive pattern in your life ever? Oh, absolutely. I think that because of my relationship with my father, who was very disconnected, my parents were divorced at a young age, not very, very disconnected. He himself had trouble connecting and emotionally and otherwise. And he is an alcoholic and was emotionally and physically abusive. My relationship with my dad created the desire to have attention from men as almost if I was trying to replace the attention I really wanted from my father. And no. that played itself out as a teen and an early adult until I started doing therapy. But for me, yes, I think that I got intoxicated with attention that I received from the validation. Right. So you already answered the next question, uh, which I was going to put is not what's wrong with the addiction, but what was right about it? What did it give you? And it gave you something you actually we all need. As, as children, we all need attention. Now, we need attention not for what we do or how we look or what people can get from us, but just because we exist. That's an essential need of the child. But if we don't get it, in an unconditional manner, then we'll seek it whatever we can get it. So that the addiction comes along, not as a problem primarily, but as an attempt to solve the problem. And in this case, for you, it was the attempt to solve the problem of not feeling valid unless you had attention from others. In my case, my workaholism was an attempt to solve the problem of not believing fundamentally that I was important enough just for existing because I got the message I got as an infant through my particular history, is whether I wasn't wanted. And if I'm not wanted, one way to deal with that is to become a doctor and, and, and meet other people's needs. Then they'll want me all the time. But it's very addictive because it doesn't matter how many men want uh, give you intention or how many people want my help. Fundamentally, there's a emptiness inside us that says, what if I wasn't pretty or if I wasn't attractive or what if i wasn't smart what if i wasn't helpful would they still want me would they still give me attention and so it's addictive you yet you keep having to have more and more to fill that emptiness so addictions are not a choice they're actually an attempt to solve the problem the problem of emotional pain and that emotional pain always originates in childhood and how do we, like, certainly for me, you know, reading your work and listening to your work and reading your book as the parent of teenagers now, it makes me really reflect a great deal on how differently my children have grown up without me even realizing how substantially different their experiences are from where I originated from. And my parents did the best that they could. And, you know, a lot of your work talks about intergenerational trauma. And so I think that that can be propagated in a lot of different behaviors, whether they're healthy or unhealthy. And in your work with patients over the course of the years, is there any differentiators between whether it's shopping addiction or drug addiction or sexual addiction? Is it all the same when we get down to it in terms of trying to heal this wound, trying to numb our feelings, trying to address uncomfortable feelings? 
you know, do you find that one addiction is better than another, meaning more curable? Is that even possible? Well, so for 12 years, I worked in uh, what is North America's most concentrated area of drug use, which is the downtown east side of Vancouver. And if anybody ever visits here, they're shocked by what they see in the street here. People are living in tents, people injecting, inhaling, trading drugs, poverty, they're ill, they're, you know, they, they don't look well. Many of them have HIV, hepatitis C, and that's where I worked for 12 years. Now, you can't compare that. You can compare it, but you can't equate it to my shopping addiction or to my work addiction. I didn't have HIV. I didn't have hepatitis C. I had a well-paid profession, you know? So in that sense, and the drug addiction, because of the nature of drugs and also because of the way society relates to them, is far more punishing for them. So in that sense, there's no equal, there's no fair comparison. So the differences are obvious. And also, it's physiologically difficult to get off drugs and opiates. You go through terrible withdrawal symptoms. You know, that's true. But if I look at the similarities, that's what they're striking. I could recognize myself in every patient I had. Despite the obvious differences in our life conditions, they just suffered more than I had. They had suffered more deeper and more uh, persistent trauma than I had. And so their physiology was their brains were more prone to need drugs in order to temporarily feel better about themselves. But the emptiness that they had, I had it. The desperation to escape from my emotional distress, I had it. They had it. The behaviors that followed, which were compulsive and self-destructive, that was similar. The lying that I engaged in, the dishonesty in my marriage as a result of my addictive habits, that reflected the manipulations and dishonesties of my clients. So what I'm saying is that the differences are obvious, but the it's the similarities that are interesting. And in that sense, most of us are very much like those very abject drug-addicted people that we like to admit. And because we don't like to admit it, we look down upon them, ostracize them, and punish them. But really, they're just more extreme versions of ourselves because their suffering had been more extreme. My new favorite protein powder is by Equip Foods. It is the safest, cleanest, doctor-formulated protein powder for building muscle and shedding fat that won't leave you gassy and bloated like so many other brands do. It's 100% grass-fed and finished beef protein powder that's good for your gut and tastes delicious. We know that one in three adults don't consume enough protein, and it's certainly a topic we discuss on the podcast with regularity. And if you want to help build muscle and lose fat and keep your immune system strong and have all-day energy, you want to be ensuring that you're consuming adequate protein throughout the day. And actually, if you are north of 40 years old, as I talk about on the podcast quite a bit, we need more protein with age and not less. Each scoop of Prime Protein's doctor-formulated beef isolate protein powder has 21 grams of protein. And with only a small handful of ingredients, you're getting only what you need, 100% carefully sourced real foods and nothing else. No junk, no additives, no allergens, no chemicals or fillers. And let's be clear, it tastes really good. My personal favorite is chocolate as well as peanut butter. But in my house, vanilla and strawberry are also super popular. Their products are 100% grass fed. They prioritize 
working with regenerative farms who let their cows graze outside and source the highest quality grass-fed beef protein that can be found. They work with small farms in Sweden who are dedicated to humanely raising their cattle, and it's independently tested. Additionally, beef protein is packed with things like collagen, gelatin, and micronutrients that your body needs. They work to help repair joints and soft tissues like plant-based proteins won't. With six different flavors, including the ones that I mentioned are my family favorites, there are endless recipes, possibilities. They also have an unflavored variety. It's smooth. It blends easily. You don't have to use a blender. It has no funky aftertaste. It tastes amazing with just water, can be mixed into hot or cold recipes, and has over 2,000 five-star reviews and counting. And it comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't love it after 30 days, they will give you a full refund. So the easiest way to check this product out is to go to equipfoods.com slash Cynthia 20. That's equipfoods, E-Q-I-P foods.com slash Cynthia 20 for 20% off your first order. Remember, my favorite flavors are chocolate and peanut butter, but in my house, vanilla and strawberry are close seconds. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. It's interesting. I trained in inner city Baltimore and this was in the 1990s at the height of the heroin crisis, you know, IV drug abuse, every socioeconomic issue you can think of you know, number one city for teen pregnancy, for syphilis, for HIV and AIDS. And coming from the suburbs, it was a baptism by fire, if you will. I have never been more humbled. The issues that my patients were dealing with, I thought to myself, it was the greatest opportunity to grow as a human being because it made me so profoundly empathetic. And then I worked in the ER and, and you see everything there. And when we touch on that loneliness, when I reflect back on my childhood, my parents got divorced when I was seven. And my grandmother actually shared with me years later, it was like, you went from being a happy child to being like very quiet and very introspective. And that sensation of loneliness and not feeling that at seven years old, it was very hard to talk to my parents about. And certainly seven-year-old children don't have the ability to talk to their friends about it, not like adults do. 
and the recognition as I was reading your book of, oh my gosh, that's exactly that feeling that I had as a small child. And that's exactly the feeling I had when I was getting older and I would get attention from someone and then that attention would shift. It was the same like feeling of rejection that my father gave me. Mm-hmm. And it was a really profound realization for me, especially because I, I think for so many of us on social media, we want everyone to think everything's perfect. You know, this artifice of perfection, which is, you know, an example of this toxic culture that we're all growing up in. You know, there's a new book actually that talks about some of the themes I cover in my book, but it's all about the way that the tech companies deliberately target the circuits in the child's brain that are more prone to get addicted. Now, it's just a new book. What you talked about, about not being able to talk to somebody, I would suggest it didn't start at age seven, because you, you mentioned that your father emotionally abused you, I think you said? Yes. Um, that didn't start at age seven, did it? No. Okay. When you suffered, who, who did you speak to about it? No one. Okay. Now, this is a question I often ask people. You have children. If they suffered just one episode of emotional distress, never mind abuse, who would you want them to talk to? I would want them to come to my husband or I'm. Yeah. Now, if you found out that one of your children had had such a negative experience, just even once, even a fleeting, such not an ongoing one, and they hadn't talked to you, how would you explain that? I think I wouldn't struggle to find the way to explain i'd be devastated of course you'd be emotionally devastated but i'm asking how would you ultimately explain it why this because the day that your child was born they expressed everything so how would you explain the fact that now at age four or five they're not talking to me with what hurts them and i haven't created the environment to allow them to feel comfortable to express themselves which leaves them how it leaves them feeling invalidated lonely their needs aren't being met so I'm saying that that sense of being alone of yours didn't start with your parents' divorce. It long predated it. You know, I would agree with that. So that the sense of isolation. And then the problem is we then carry that into the adult life and the imprint of that isolation until we really learn to deal with it, until we get some therapy or some other transformational experience, you know, falls our way. We carry that sense of isolation. So in the midst of an earth with 8 billion people on it, we all experience as, as isolated ourselves. And so in, in today's world, there's actually an epidemic of loneliness and isolation, which, because the mind and the body can't be separated, that loneliness translates into illness. And it's been shown, and according to studies, that extreme loneliness and isolation is as bad for your physiological health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And But it's an epidemic in today's world. And that's the world that we're living in now. And I feel like with the pandemic, it has probably magnified that, you know, with so many people that were separated from their loved ones, not able to connect physically in person. Have you seen that to be the case in your work as well? What I've seen with the pandemic is largely what you described, because we talk about social isolation. Well, social isolation has been happening in our culture for the last several decades. The sense of isolation statistically has been increasing to the point where in Britain, they appointed some years ago a minister for loneliness. That's how bad it has become. That's a product of modern culture, and especially since certain economic political changes happened about 40, 50 years ago. But under COVID, some families who had not been carrying a lot of trauma 
when they found themselves socially isolated, they actually got better because the parents all of a sudden couldn't go to work and they stayed at home. And oh my God, I'm seeing how my kids play. I'm seeing my kids' milestones. I'm recognizing how my kids study. And they reconnected with their kids. In other families, child abuse went up and alcoholism went up and the number of visits and emergency wards for her children went up during COVID. So those that had been fortunate enough to have connected childhoods, COVID actually brought families closer together. And of course, with the help of the internet, they could talk to grandparents and all that. But those that were already isolated or traumatized, it made it a lot worse. So the result has been an increase in mental health issues, in addictions and so on. It's really interesting because I, you know, we lived in a very big city on the East Coast. And during the pandemic, my husband and I decided, you know, we didn't love where we lived and we picked up and moved in the middle of the pandemic. We moved to another part of our state and the mental health benefits of being where we are now, slower pace, less people, people are friendlier because now we're technically in the South of the United States Mm. and it's been such a, a gift and a blessing. And so maybe for some families, the recognition that the pandemic brought some of us together, creating more boundaries for maybe unhealthy relationships where you physically couldn't see them in person and and more boundaries were created in response to that. That's right. When we think about the changes that have happened in our culture over the last 40 or 50 years that you've kind of alluded to, where in your methodology does the degree of materialism that we see nowadays, you know, this conspicuous consumption. I, I best example I can give in the United States, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, people were shopping like crazy from, you know, Thanksgiving through today. Where does materialism fit in amongst all of this trauma and addiction and this epidemic of loneliness? Well, materialism is a reduction of human beings to a very narrow uh, range of their activities and their interests. Basically, materialism basically says that what matters is matter. The more matter I can manufacture, sell, own, control, the more I'm a valid human being. And so the people that we idolize and certainly who, to a significant degree, run our society are people that control a lot of material. And through their control of material, they control a lot of people's life as well. And a guy like Elon Musk was in a certain way a genius but in other ways, it's completely disconnected from reality, can with the stroke of a pen, fire 7,500 people from a job overnight. Now, that's his right to do that, given our current economic and political setup. My question, though, is what is the impact on those 7,500 who all of a sudden are out of a job? Or to the employees that he kept, to whom he said, you can stay on the job, but you're going to have to work longer hours and more intensively. So this materialism and our worship of the two Ps profit and power actually make people sick because that loss of control, that loss of meaning and belonging, that losing a job means, that sense of invalidation, that uncertainty, that ha- those have physical impacts on people's health. Now, when you look at more traditional cultures, it was all about restitution and connection and coherence and harmony and belonging. A totally different set of values where material possessions weren't the be-all and the end-all. As a matter of fact, here in uh, British Columbia and then northeastern, northwestern United States as well, there used to be this tradition of the potlatch. In the potlatch, what would happen is that either all their relatives and friends invite a lot of people and give everything away to them. And your wealth was measured not by what you kept, but by what you gave away. 
so that we have this belief that what we're doing now is normal and this is the way it needs to be and and human nature is grasping and selfish and greedy and aggressive and competitive when somebody does something along those lines what do we say we say well that's just human nature what about when somebody gives when somebody's generous when somebody's kind when somebody's open-hearted do we ever say well that's just human nature we don't so we make a certain assumption about what human nature is traditionally and from the point of evolution, being coherent, living in harmony, contributing, being in community, being connected, being collective, is far more human nature than its opposite. So this materialistic culture narrows us down. It matter does matter, but it's not everything. And it this culture narrows us down to our most lowest basic denominator. That's what it does. And it's such it hurts us. It hurts us physically. It hurts us emotionally. And it certainly limits us spiritually as well. Well, and it's interesting that the area of the United States that we just moved from, it was very much, you know, the concept of keeping up with the Joneses, that's how people felt. And, you know, we made a, a conscientious decision to leave that environment because I kept saying to my children, this isn't normal and this yeah. isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to be in an environment where there's a lot of a lot more income disparity and people living in different. And I just kept saying to my children, when you go off to college, this is going to be, this is normal. It is not normal to be, you know, very homogenous in terms of income and the way people live. And it also kind of distracts from what's most important. I think sometimes people get disconnected by the things and it doesn't build or yield more connection. It just yields more time away from the people that they love and care about, you know, whether it's a bigger house, a more expensive car, expensive vacations, et cetera. And it's something that I certainly have kind of watched from the inside out. Being an introvert, I'm a big observer of trends and things that I witness, and certainly being a clinician, seeing a lot of that as well, how that showed up for patients, especially in the 2008 timeframe when uh, you know there was this stock market crash and resultant real estate crash. And a lot of my patients would tell me they would literally just leave the keys to their home and just leave. They would just stop paying. They would just, it was just such a burden to have so much financial responsibility that they didn't fully appreciate or understand it. It was almost like a noose around their neck, if you will. And so this society creates a lot of uncertainty, loss of control, conflict. And those are documentably the biggest triggers for physiological stress. I suppose what I would ask you is that in your own medical training, did anybody talk to you about stress and illness? No. Anybody, anybody talk to you about, you know, the fact that the more trauma you have, the more likely to have autoimmune disease, that women with severe PTSD, well, this is a new study, have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer, that women sexually abused have a vastly increased risk of endometriosis, that people who suffer childhood adversity have far more heart disease, far more migraines. They don't tell us these things. It's almost like when you first start seeing it, you think you're seeing things. Well, you are seeing things, but that's because nobody ever told you that a lot of other people have seen the same thing, studied them and researched them, documented them, but that somehow never enters into our education. So as medical people, we're left blind to what's in front of us, which is that most of the problems that we deal with of chronic illness, mental illness, addiction, are actually outcomes of trauma and disconnection and living in a culture where trauma, disconnection are considered to be so normal that we don't even see them. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that the issues with autoimmunity and for listeners, if they're less familiarized with that terminology, 
in your clinical experience, what types of autoimmune disorders are you seeing in more females versus men? Are you seeing more rheumatoid arthritis or celiac? What are the kind of typical manifestations you're seeing of autoimmune diseases? Well, so there's about 60 to 80 conditions that are identified as autoimmune in which the immune system turns against the self. It's as if the American army invaded the United States with hostile intent. The immune system that's meant to protect us turns against us, attacks our nervous system, in which case we may get multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, or we get it attacks our joints or connective tissue. Then we have systemic lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or guts, in which case there's inflammation. And then we have Crohn's disease or colitis. Now, here's the thing. It's not what I see personally. It's what do the studies show. Statistically, 70 to 80% of autoimmune disease happens to women. And the medical profession throws up their hands and say, well, what's causing this? They're not looking at people's lives. Because the people who get autoimmune disease, in my experience, and also in more than one study, are people who are self-effacing, who are compulsively meeting the emotional needs of others ahead of their own, ignoring their own, who repress their healthy anger, who are very, very nice. They're sort of peacers, peacemakers. And people who believe that they're responsible for other people feel and must never disappoint anybody. And who are therefore absorbing the stresses not only of their own, but of their families and of their spouses. Now, which gender is actually programmed to do that in this culture? It's females. And that's why women have 70 to 80% of autoimmune disease. It's no mystery. It's only a mystery if you don't understand the unity of mind and body, that emotions are inseparable from our physiology, which scientifically is not even controversial, but which nobody talks about in medical school. So there's this astonishing gap between... Um, what science has shown and what we're taught as as medical people in our, in our education, which means that when you go to a neurologist or a gastroenterologist, rheumatologist, cardiologist, there's a Danish study this week that one more time showed the, the, the relationship between childhood adversity and adult, you know, cardiovascular disease. So you go to any one of these ologists, they're going to deal with the organ that's the pathology is showing up in, they're not going to deal with you as a human being. They're not going to ask you about stresses in your life, trauma in your childhood, how you relate to your spouse or your partner, how you feel about yourself as a human being, what your work is like for you. Most of the time, they're not going to ask those questions. And yet, in those questions is the answer to why you got ill and also how you can heal. Because if you can recognize the stresses that you're generating unwittingly for yourself, you can stop creating those stresses. That can make a huge difference to the course of your illness. There's only one point I want to make, which is when you, which is, pertains to you and I. I think we have to recognize, like you, you mentioned that you and your husband during the pandemic, you realized that you were not living in a very healthy place and you moved to somewhere much more congenial, much more connected, communal, interesting, peaceful. I have all, all kinds of choices available to me, but we're privileged. Not everybody in this culture has those kind of privileges. Not everybody can just move on and start doing something different or follow their passions the way you and I can, you know? Because of materialism, this is a culture based on strata. And health itself is a social gradient that the lower down the pole you go, the more likely you are to get any kind of illness, you know? And that's connected to social class and to race. Not the race, but racialism. And I just, 
Not that you and I can do anything about that in the short term, but I think we have to acknowledge it, that it's not just an individual choice, it's also a set of social circumstances. For example, in the U.S., 25% of women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth, which amounts to a massive abandonment of infants, but they can't help it because they have to, you know, and the impacts are terrible. But these are social issues so that we have, and again, nobody in medical school teaches you to look at the larger social picture. It's all about the individual organ, the biology of the individual organ. Everything is reduced to the material facts, but not to the context in which those material facts evolve and, and exist. And I think we have to keep that in mind. No, I totally agree with you. We are very fortunate, very privileged. And that kind of reductionistic methodology that is aligned with a traditional allopathic medicine where, you know, you're reduced to you're a kidney doctor, you're yeah. a cardiologist, you deal with, you know, GYN, whatever it is that you deal with, and you don't think about other systems. And yet they're all so interrelated. And I, I think on a lot of levels, the understanding that, you know, certainly for me, training in the inner city, mm-hmm. I always felt that whatever work I did with my patients, they really appreciated and valued. And they were so unaccustomed to people being kind, just simple kindness. And then when I finished my training and moved to the area I just left, I remember feeling very differently about my patients. There was an expectation that I was serving them and there wasn't nearly the um, amount of appreciation. And, And not that I needed that validation. It was just observational that these people who had every economic materialistic advantage over the patients I had initially trained around oftentimes were not particularly appreciative of anything. And so, you know, to me, I feel very grateful that I had the opportunity to train with a group of individuals who taught me a lot and taught me a lot on a very substantive level. In fact, the greatest patient experiences I've had as a clinician were the ones that I had when I trained in Baltimore, because those patients made such an indelible impression on me. And yet, you know, in some ways they had the most disadvantageous environment, you know, they had no access to fresh fruits and vegetables. They were oftentimes dealing with significant violence day to day, multi-generational, you know, drug use, you know, I would have 15 year old patients delivering their second child. And I mean, it was just a degree of experiences that really taught me a lot. I think if you really go into medicine because you want to serve others, those kinds of impressions really leave quite a bit on an imprint on your psyche. Well, in my case, so I was in family practice and palliative care first, and then I went to the downtown east side. And interesting to hear you talk about your experience because I had the same. In the downtown east side, I don't know if you agree with this, but it's hard to explain, to define, but I had a sense of greater authenticity. Now, my patients lied all the time and they cheated and manipulated. They had to because they were drug addicts. And that's in this days of the war on drugs and the illegality of what they were doing and the ostracization they suffered from society. Manipulation and lying becomes like ways of survival. So it's not that they're always truthful, but they're always authentic, much more authentic than people else. Like they weren't pretending to be anything other than who they were. And in much of the rest of society, we get away with, or we, we even encourage to practice this pretense, you know, whereas these people are beyond pretense, you know. So when one of them stole my cell phone and I went after him, I knew because it, it was gone as soon as he, you know, and I found him. But then I found him 20 minutes later in his hotel room 
the cell phone was already in a pawn shop. So we went to the pawn shop and I got my cell phone back, you know, and I says, and I know he liked me and he respected me. And he said, why did you do it? He says, what do you expect me to do, doc? I'm a dog addict. You know? <laughs> I just had to laugh about it, you know, but I really liked those people and mm-hmm. they taught me a lot and they taught me a lot about myself. And I certainly had the sense I talked about before as well is that I could really recognize myself in them. I could recognize a more privileged version of a human being in myself, but not somebody who was qualitatively, quantitatively, I was different, but qualitatively, I was not. And that was interesting to look into that mirror. I can imagine. And, you know, I feel so appreciative and grateful that I had those experiences because it is certainly allowed me to live a life with a different viewpoint. You know, I I think that for those of us that have really served patients in that capacity, we've had patients that have just really, I mean, gosh, you, you can't help, but when you're working with people like that, you hope if you're not hardened and you're still, you know, able to be connected and attuned to their needs that you're viewing them from a non-prejudicial kind of mindset. And fortunately, one of the things I do think happens over time with a lot of clinicians, especially if they have, they're seeing a lot of trauma and violence and a lot of just a lot of very heavy situations with patients that they can become hardened and and then they're no longer reachable. It's like, they're just hard and they have this hardened exterior. And as you mentioned, that's a coping mechanism for what we've grown up around. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. 
Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armorous colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. And so you kind of alluded to how our culture can impact our children in negative ways. You mentioned the women that have to go back to work soon after delivering children. I know I went back at 12 weeks and I remember even though I worked part-time, that was, it felt like the most unnatural thing in the world. Even though I was leaving my children or at the time, I was leaving them with an individual that we thought of as an extension of our family. How do we ensure that our children at, at younger ages are able to have a healthy childhood? You know, in terms of that attachment process that we've talked about, we've kind of danced around. Yeah. First of all, we have to get the unnaturalness of our relationship to our children these days, not in a sense to be judgmental or critical of ourselves, but just to recognize it so we can cope with it. So human beings evolved in small band hunter-gatherer groups. And until even our own species, which has been on Earth for 200,000 years, until 15,000 years ago, we were all in small hunter-gatherer bands, all of us. And which means that if our species had been on Earth for an hour until five minutes ago, we lived in a totally different way. That's how natural it is now. Now, that the separation of parents, and even until recently, on the farms and in the villages, kids grew up around their adults in their lives. They weren't separated the whole day. So this idea of separating kids from their natural caregivers for the whole day is very recent. Now, if that's the way it has to be, then let's not assume that it's healthy or natural. So that means let's put a lot more effort into restoring and maintaining that attachment relationship. So at the end of the day, if you haven't seen your, if your two-year-old has been in daycare the whole day, don't assume at the end of the day that he or she or they are still your child. You have to kind of re, my friend, the psychologist Gordon Neufeld, with whom I wrote a book called Hold On to Your Kids, he says, collect them before you direct them. So at the end of the day, let's have some rituals 
where we join, rejoin, recollect them, bring them under our wing again, hang around with them, play with them. The family meal that is almost a endangered species. Because even when it happens, people are sitting in front of a screen, not relating to each other. So let's put these rituals into place that are simple, but are designed not for any other purpose, but to reestablish and maintain the connection with our kids. That's the first thing. The second thing is keep these things out of the hands of small children. If I was raising a child today, I wouldn't let them go near a screen for several years at least, many years actually, except when in my company and very, very briefly. Because this is not only addictive, is designed to be addictive. And as soon as somebody gets addicted, they don't want the attachment. They want their addictive behavior. So trying to peel an addicted kid off their cell phone is like trying to get a drug addict off their opiates. Any parent who's, who's had that experience knows exactly what I'm talking about. Children, in order to develop in a healthy way, they have certain basic needs. One of them is a secure unconditionally accepting attachment relationship. Number two, rest. Rest means the child shouldn't have to work to make the relationship work. Child shouldn't have to be pretty, smart, compliant, anything. They should just be able to rest in the knowledge that relationship is absolutely secure. The third need that children have, which is often trampled on in our society, they have to be able to experience all their emotions. And our brain are wired, our brain is wired for a whole plethora of emotions, including joy and playfulness and curiosity, but also rage and grief and fear. And in our society, we punish kids if they exhibit some of these traits. So we tell them, don't experience all your emotions. And some very famous psychologists even advise parents to punish kids if they have certain emotions. You know, and so that's the third need is to experience all our emotions. And when a child is in grief, you don't say to them, get over it. You acknowledge it and you hold them. You know, and grief happens because that dog may die or you may lose a toy or granddad may not feel like visiting you one day, you know, and the child is grieving. Get over it. No, feel it. You know, and the fourth essential need of children is free, spontaneous, creative play. And that's essential for healthy brain development. Creative play is much more important for healthy brain development than intellectual stimulation. That's a scientific fact. When we give, again, I'm riding this horse, when you give this to kids, you're destroying their capacity to play freely and spontaneously. Because it's no, no longer coming from them. It's programmed by other people. So let's meet those four needs of children. Let's start even before then. The stresses on pregnant women already in a negative way affect the physiology and the brain development of the child in utero. Now, when I went to medical school, maybe we didn't know it then, we know it now. But even today, the average medical student, when they taught prenatal care, take the blood pressure, measure the weight, do ultrasounds perhaps, blood tests, physical examinations, blood pressure. We never ask women about how you're feeling, what's your relationship like, what stresses are under. So let's start taking our taking care of our pregnant women so that we can take care of the unborn child because that child is being affected by the emotional states of their mother. And that could go on. In the book, I talk about this. The medicalization of childbirth, the horrible way in which we've mechanized childbirth. Now we have these great miracles of Western medicine. They can save the lives of children and mothers, and they do. That should be celebrated. 
but we've overdone it. We've mechanized birth, we've medicalized it, which interferes with the bonding between mother and infant. So there's so much basic stuff we could do that isn't cost-intensive. It would cost less money in the long term, but we need to align with nature. And one of the toxicities of our culture is we've become so denatured. We've become so far away. So we have to recognize in all the ways that we've lost connection to our humanity. And we have to reconnect with that humanity. That's what I'm saying. I think it's so important, especially I reflect back. I know of teenagers, but when they were younger, there was this push to, you know, get kids into baby sign language and start, you know, second and third languages before they hit preschool. And we never did any of that. I have boys. So there was a lot of a lot of free play because they just had so much energy. And that was the way to channel it. Take them to the park, let them play outside, get them on a bike. Absolutely. Now, one thing that really left an indelible impression on me when I was reading the book was the discussions around multi-generational trauma. As you can imagine, this is an area of particular interest for me, but I think on so many levels, the understanding that these epigenetic changes can make on each subsequent generation. And let's unpack and discuss that a bit because I I know that for many people, they may not be aware this actually happens, but it helps explain behaviors. So trauma is passed on multigenerationally and 95% of trauma is passed on multigenerationally, which means it didn't begin with anybody. So if you look at your situation, so much as you told me about it, your father was an alcoholic, you said. Now, alcoholism is about one thing and one thing only, to numb emotional pain. In fact, what do you say about somebody's drunk too much? You say, oh, he's feeling no pain. So your father was in emotional pain. And hence my mantra on addiction is don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. If your father was in pain, it's because he was traumatized as a childhood, in childhood, as probably were his parents. And so then it comes to you, and he as a young person, relatively young person, as a child, he hasn't resolved his trauma. He's still engaged in his alcoholism. He's married another traumatized person because only a traumatized woman would marry somebody who becomes an alcoholic. So now you have two traumatized parents who then bring forth a child. The father's an alcoholic who emotionally abuses his child and maybe physically abuses his child. And the mother is so traumatized, she doesn't intervene to protect the child. Not because she doesn't love her but if she's presented, prevented by her own trauma to, from even perhaps recognizing it. Or if she does recognize it, to have the inner resilience and strength to protect the child. So now you have two traumatized persons passing on their trauma through their child, through their own particular behavior, which is trauma imprinted and trauma directed. In addition to that, there's what you call the epigenetic effect, which is that the very functioning of our genes is affected by our life experiences. And those genetic, not genetic in the sense that the genes don't change, our DNA doesn't change, but how that DNA is triggered, how those chromosomes are active, how those genes are activated, turned on or turned off, that can have a physiological side to it. And those physiological impacts, how genes are activated or turned off, is passed on from one generation to the next. So both epigenetically and simply through psychologically and emotionally and behaviorally, trauma is multi-generation. And so the healing of it in one generation is to prevent it from being passed on to the next. So you did something that your mother didn't do. You began at some point, as far as I understand your story, before you were children, you began to work on your trauma because you realized that your behaviors were destroying your life. And my, my guess is that your mother never did that. And that means at least not before she had children. 
And that means by the time you had children, you were able to give a gift to your kids of somebody who may not have been perfect, but who had worked through their trauma. And to the extent that you'd worked it through, you weren't going to pass it on to them, which your parents passed on to you. So the trauma is multigenerational. The healing is also multigenerational in the sense that now when your kids have children, they're not going to pass on what you stopped. You know, so both trauma and the healing of trauma are multigenerational, which is why we don't blame anybody, by the way. I mean, we can be angry and upset about your dad's behavior, but I would never blame him. That's, it's a totally different thing. The, I'm not saying it's acceptable or to be condoned. I'm not saying you shouldn't have anger or, or pain around it, but to blame him, which is to say, you did this deliberately and you to hurt me. No, he didn't. You know, that's a fine distinction, but I think... It's an important one, you know, because in this society, we have a tendency to blame people. And I think our job, especially as clinicians, is not to blame people, but to understand them. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that, you know, through many years of, of therapy and self-reflection and just being honest, I always say I'm the truth seeker in my family. Yeah. I view my parents very compassionately. There is no anger on my end. I mean, it, maybe when I was younger, I might have felt that way. But now I think my focus has really been on making sure I'm as healthy as possible for my children so that that multi-generational trauma ends with me. And how is it that we go about healing? Like, how does that process start? Obviously, it's the the recognition that there is a behavior that is an unhealthy one, and that can be defined differently for everyone. Certainly for myself, I had a good college roommate who basically said, you've got some very unhealthy habits. Like, I really think you should go talk to someone. And that was the beginning of many years of therapy. And and I think for most of us, I would say we're probably doing some degree of inner work throughout our lifetime. I mean, let's be honest, we're always a work in progress, but how do we heal? How do we work through this? Yeah. So for you, as for me, and for many people, it begins with suffering and it begins with the suffering that we actually unwittingly creating for ourselves. And then we have to ask, well, why am I doing this? And that's, that's the first question. So you got to start with that question. Not why am I doing this in itself, judgmental way, but really compassionately. I talk, I call that compassionate inquiry. Not why am I doing this, but hmm, why am I doing this? So it needs to begin with that question. And for most of us, what initiates that question is some degree of suffering. And uh, whether that suffering shows up in a form of physical illness, I don't recommend that way of learning, but when physical illness happens, it often acts as a teacher through a mental health condition like depression. So if you don't see depression, for example, as a disease inherited or otherwise, but if you just take the word depression, what does it mean? It means to push something down. What are we pushing down? I was, I've been treated for depression and I've taken antidepressants. And you know what? They even helped me. So I'm not here to speak about, speak against certain treatments, but I'm saying those treatments only affect the symptoms, not the underlying dynamics. And so depression means pushing down. What am I pushing down when I'm, when I'm depressed? I'm pushing down my feelings. Why am I pushing down my feelings? Because in childhood, that's how I survived. So if you start asking these questions, well, why am I depressing myself? Then you can start looking for the answers. Now, healing the world itself means healing it comes from the word whole. The Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness. So healing means a movement towards becoming whole. How can we not be whole? 
Because the essence of trauma is what I said earlier, is disconnection from ourselves. So healing ultimately is reconnecting with ourselves, becoming whole again. And even in addiction, when people recover, what did they, when I ask people, what did you find when you recovered? They say, I found myself. So, which is an important lesson that medical school never teaches you. There is a healing capacity inside all of us. There's an authentic self that we all can embody. An illness of mind and body, in most cases, represent, in not all cases, but especially chronic illness of mind and body, always represents a disconnection from ourselves. And healing is becoming whole again, reconnecting. Many pathways towards doing that. I outline some of my recommended pathways in this book. I'm sure you have your recommendations. I don't think there's any one size fits all, but it begins with the question of why am I doing this? And how did I learn to do this? And how do I reconnect with myself? So that's the basic challenge and it's the path. The ways to do so is probably beyond the limits of this conversation for me to go into in detail. But again, I teach the ones I understand best in the book and there's many others that are equally good that I don't teach that other people do. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really been looking forward to it. And obviously my listeners are going to know this is probably the most personal podcast I've ever had sharing things that I don't often share, but in the context of providing some degree of transparency, this is part of my journey, you know, and sharing my experiences, I think is really invaluable. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you. Your book is part of my, you know, I always come out with a list every year of books that I think are particularly helpful and and yours is absolutely in there. It's a book that I know I'm going to be referencing for years to come, but let my listeners know how they can connect with you outside of the podcast and get a copy of your book. Well, my book, I'm happy to say is a New York Times bestseller. So it should be available in most bookstores and certainly online if people want to go that way. This is the, the fifth book I've written. I've also written on addictions, attention deficit disorder, mind, body, health, and parenting. And I'm not going to give you the titles, but <laughs> people can easily find my books online or anywhere else. There's a, dozens of YouTube talks that I've given that other people have uploaded and have been seen by hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of people. doesn't cost any money. You can check it out. I also have a website, drgabormate.com. People can go on the mailing list or just check out the website for my events. Instagram, Gabor Mate, MD. Not that I ever go on it personally, but <laughs> but I occasionally I do live events with other people, like I will with Dr. Shafali in a couple of days from this particular interview. So there's lots of ways to find me. Basically, it's my website, anywhere on YouTube, through my books. I'm not hard to find if you start looking for me. Awesome. Thank you again for your time today. My pleasure, and thank you so much. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. 
It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 